Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part three of a three-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Session three, very God of very God, attempting to comprehend the divine condescension. Last week's message called the Koine Jesus ended with this very same concept of attempting to comprehend the divine condescension. And so there's going to be certain things that are going to be similar. Remember, I was preparing those two messages simultaneously. And I mean, this is, this is so utterly amazing. When you understand the highness of Jesus, then the fact that he took such a low place is so staggering that you can't breathe. But it's so hard for us to see it. You, you felt that? Where it's just like, I know it intellectually. I could say it even. He was high. We are low. He came even lower than us, washed our feet, gave up his life for us. Yay. But we don't fully grasp it. We don't understand it. We don't comprehend it. And I don't know that my little sermonette here is going to do the ultimate work of grafting it into our understanding. However, maybe it'll take us one step closer. To see it, to behold his majesty. Divine reasoning regarding Jesus Christ. We're going to call these the ten building blocks of awe. If what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, throughout the entire Bible is true, then Jesus is dot, dot, dot. So we're going to fill in that blank with ten building blocks of awe. Ten things that if the word of God is in fact true, then we can stand certain on the fact that Jesus is is more than just a good man that walked this earth 2,000 years ago. He's more than just a man who received an unjust penalty. And he was, he was good, and he was just trying to help people, but he was crucified. How terrible is that? No, this is God Almighty come to redeem the people of this earth. So our striking thought number one. Jesus is from old, from everlasting. He has no beginning and no ending. So in Micah 5.2, a scripture, a very famous one, by the way, speaking of the coming Messiah. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is to be ruler in Israel. So let me ask this question to all of us good seasoned Christians. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Is it true that he came forth out of Bethlehem? Oh, yes. What else is true? Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. You see, that goes with it. The one who was born in Bethlehem, his goings forth, where did he come from? Where did he usher forth from? From of old and from everlasting. That's what it says. So if the Bible is true, that's true. Melchizedek is being referred to, who resembled the Son of God in the fact that having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So in the reference to Melchizedek, it is likening him to Jesus. And what it says is that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. 
Awe-striking thought number two. He is very God of very God. God of light, light of light, very God of very God. That's from the Nicene Creed. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. He is, in fact, very God of very God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. For in him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It's an amazing statement. To say that though he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It was okay for Jesus to say, yeah, I, I am equal with God. And by the way, that seems to be exactly what he was communicating. To everyone in the Jewish culture, except for us, we didn't seem to catch it when he speaks. We're like, he's just saying some simple things. No, he's declaring his equality with God. He's declaring that God is his father. He's declaring that his beginnings or his goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. Uh, excuse me, Jesus, but that's inappropriate. Unless it's true. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, who know their Bible very well, and reasoned in their hearts, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? What did he do? All he said is, Thy sins be forgiven thee. How, how is that a blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God only? What is Jesus making very clear? By the way, I am God. So if you're wondering, all you good scribes out there, how I can say that, <clears throat> I'm God. They're saying, how could he speak such blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Oh, he is God. I and my Father are one. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Awe-striking thought number three. He is the almighty creator of the heavens and earth. Jesus Christ, by whom all things were made. Isn't that a strange thought? For those of you that have never turned that one over in your mind, it's actually very clear throughout scripture that Jesus is, is in fact the creator of the heavens and the earth. That sounds strange. It's like, wait, 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 a minute. didn't Jesus like show up on the scenes 2,000 years ago? Oh, yeah, that's, that's when you saw him walking around in a physical body. But uh, his goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. Don't you know who that is? Don't you know who came to this earth? Who was in that man's body? Don't you know who that is? All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. For by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. For this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. This is an amazing statement. Inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. So you already can get the divine logic here. Who built the house? Jesus. Well, who built all things? God. Who is Jesus? He's God. He's the builder of all things. 
And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, listen to this line, by whom also he made the worlds. Ah, striking thought number four. He is, um, he is. That's the statement. He is. He is in truth Jehovah God, the I am, that was, is, and is to come, the revelation of the Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Well, what are you saying there, Jesus? You see, I'm the full manifestation of the Father, is what he's saying. Whoa. You see, he is, in fact, God. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, ego I may. That's unspeakable. How dare he? No matter how you interpret that, even if you wanted to diminish it down and say, he's still saying he's before Abraham. Try and swallow that one. That's what Jesus himself declared. However, he's saying more than that. He's long before Abraham. He is. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. What, what is that saying? You know what that's declaring? You know who is yesterday, today, and forever? You know what the concept of I am even is? The I am that I am? That basically means, in a Jewish mind, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. He never changes. He is always. And so when in the book of Hebrews it says Jesus Christ, it might as well say Jesus Christ is in fact the I am. That's what it's saying. I am Alpha and Omega, says Jesus. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just hear what Jesus says? I'm going to read it just in case you missed it. I am, I may, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord Jesus, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Yeah, he's big. He's not just a man. He is God come to this earth, dwelling within the humble skin of a man. Therefore, Jesus is the manifold revelation of the God of the Old Testament. A lot of us have this notion that when Jesus came along, he sort of upgraded God. It's like, thank you, Jesus. So glad you came because that God of the Old Testament, whew, he's hard to deal with. However, Jesus is in fact the revelation of the God of the Old Testament. There's no difference. He was, he is, and he is to come the same always. In him is no shadow of turning. Jesus is the manifest revelation of the God that we know as Jehovah in the Old Testament. So you know what that means? Everything that's revealed of God in the Old Testament is actually who Jesus is. Jesus is El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. Jesus is El Elyon, the Most High God. Jesus is Adonai, Lord Master. Jesus is Yahweh, Lord Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner, the Lord my miracle. Jesus is Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd. Jesus is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jesus is Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jesus is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jesus is Jehovah Mekishikim. Sorry, I need to do that one again. 
Makadishkim. That is the hardest one for me. The Lord who sanctifies you, the Lord who makes holy. Jesus is El Olam, the everlasting God, the God of eternity, the God of the universe, the God of ancient days. Jesus is Elohim, God, judge, creator. Jesus is Kana, jealous. Jesus is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jesus is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jesus is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of powers. Ah, striking thought number five. He is the word of God made flesh. I don't know if that is fully sunk in. I don't even know if it's fully sunk into me, but I tell you what, it's one of the most flabbergasting things that I've ever had go through my mind is when I begin to realize, wait a minute, all of this is fulfilled in him. So when I study the Old Testament, what do I begin to see everywhere I look? Oh, Jesus. Jesus? Jesus. You see, he is the fulfillment of it all. He fleshed it out. He animated it so that we would understand it. Without Jesus, you don't understand the Old Testament. It's that simple. Jesus is the key that unlocks that great mystery. Even the Jews would acknowledge it. It's a great mystery to us. It's a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but it's now been revealed. How was it revealed? In the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, we can actually understand the grandeur of what God had intended all along. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the Bible brought to life, breathing, walking, talking, healing, and rescuing. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he, Jesus, was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called, what's his name? The word of God. And by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. This is in the Old Testament. It actually is declaring how the heavens were made. How were they made? The same way we learn in the New Testament. Who made them? Well, Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is the Word of God? There's no contradiction. By the Word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. The Word of God in letter is now the Word of God in life. The Word of God in law is now the Word of God in spirit, in truth. The Word of God in proverb is now the Word of God in person. Jesus is the law of God become flesh. Jesus is the sacrifices, the feasts, the Sabbaths, the jubilee in the tabernacle temple become flesh. Jesus is the wisdom of God become flesh. Jesus is the prophecy of God become flesh. Jesus is the histories of Israel become flesh. In other words, Jesus is the word of God become flesh. Awe-striking thought number six. He is the perfect fulfillment of all prophecy and promise of the Christ. The Old Testament lays out a test. It tells of one who will come. And without this one, you have no hope. You see, this is the one who will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. It is this one, the child born, the son given, who will be our savior and the government will be upon his shoulders. He'll be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. His goings forth are from old and from everlasting. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Uh huh. It's the Old Testament. It lays a pattern. At Ellerslie, we call it the canon test or the Messiah test. You see, the Messiah is going to have to be measured against it. If he does not pass that test, he is not the Messiah. He would be deemed a false prophet. And what do you do with a false prophet according to the law? You stone him. And so if Jesus is not in perfect concordance with the canon test, he is not your Messiah and he deserves anything but veneration. He deserves to be stoned. And so, justly so, would he be crucified. However, what if he passes that test? 
If he passes that test, he is indeed the fulfillment of everything spoken. And he is indeed the master of worlds, the creator of worlds. He is indeed God come to save. He is indeed the head of all. So with divine right to rule and control, he proved the Son of God. You see the Old Testament prophecy and you see the New Testament fulfillment. He proved the seed of the woman. He proved the seed of Abraham. He proved the seed of Isaac. He proved the seed of David. He had to. If he was not of that exact lineage, he is not your Messiah. Test it. Evaluate it. He proved to be born of a virgin, and he proved to be Emmanuel, God with us. He proved to be born in Bethlehem, Judea, even though his parents were both grown up and living in Nazareth. And yet somehow, he ends up being born in Bethlehem? Figure out the odds of that happening. This young couple is barely trying to figure out life end up in Bethlehem at the fullness of her term. Why? Well, because someone called for a census. Isn't that amazing? He proved, he proved that kings fell down before him offering gifts. He proved to be called out of Egypt. If he's not called out of Egypt, he's not your Messiah. And yet, when Herod's trying to kill this threatening king, this upstart king, then God speaks to Joseph in a dream to take this young child known as Jesus to Egypt. And so Jesus is called forth out of Egypt. How strange is that? I thought their family lived in Nazareth. What do you think all the other Jews are thinking? He's from Nazareth. He wasn't born in Bethlehem. He didn't come out of Egypt. Oh, yes, he did. Why do you think the Gospels are written? They're written to clarify who he is. Did you know that he was indeed? Do you remember that census? Yeah. How long ago was that census called? Uh, let's do some... Fi- no. Uh-huh. And who would have been called to Bethlehem? Uh, wait, wait, wait. You see, both Mary and Joseph are of the lineage of David. And so even though it may have been Joseph that was called, Mary came with him. And they both were there together at the fullness of time when that little baby was saying, I need out. He proved that Elijah came before him. He proved anointed with the Spirit. He proved that his ministry commenced in Galilee. His ministry needs to start in Galilee. He proved to enter Jerusalem riding upon a colt. He proved undesirable to many. What a strange test that is. Do people like him? Not really. Oh, maybe he's he then. He proved meek. He proved to be without guile. He proved to be consumed with zeal for God's house. He proved that he bore the reproach. He proved betrayed by a friend. He had to be betrayed. If he's not betrayed, he's not your Messiah. He was betrayed, that all scripture might be fulfilled. He proved that his sheep were scattered. This is my favorite one, possibly. He proved to be sold for 30 pieces of silver in the potter's field purchased with the money. The reason I love that one so much is it was the enemies of Jesus that fulfilled it. He proved to be numbered with the criminals. If he died alone, he's not your Messiah. One, two, three. He was numbered with the criminals. He proved to go silently as a lamb unto slaughter. He proved to make intercession for his murderers. He proved that lots were cast for his clothing. He proved to die. He proved that none of his bones were broken. If one bone is broken, he's not your Messiah. And guess what? When they came to break his legs, they noticed he was already dead. 
And they stuck a spear in his side instead, which then he had to be pierced. He proved to be pierced. He proved risen again from the dead on the third day. He proved to have ascended. And yes, there's countless little ones that could go alongside and be friends to these exact test points. Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. In fact, study it all you want. It's going to say the same thing to you that it says to me. He is. He is Emmanuel. God. God came. God lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died for me? Yeah. That's the message. It's called good news. Awe-striking thought number seven. He is over all. King of kings and Lord of lords. The Father has set Jesus at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, God has exalted him to the highest place. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. Why? For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. We already know who the Lamb is, don't we? That's Jesus. And that Lamb is Lord of lords, King of kings. He is preeminent. He is ruler. He has the highest authority. Crown upon crown upon crown upon his head, which means authority of all authority, king of all kings, lord of all lords, champion of all champions, master of all masters. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. Awe-striking thought number eight. He is the only savior. Now, I don't know if that's as awe-striking to you if you believe it already, it might not be awe-striking. However, in a world of a million different gods, a million different things that can save you, whether it's a medicine cabinet over here or whether it's a false religion over here, what do we turn to for salvation? What do we turn to? A job, a lottery ticket? Where do you put your hope? Where do you put your confidence? There is only one thing that can save you, only one thing that can remedy your problem, only one. And I have the privilege of speaking that one. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the lone means of salvation. There are other things that can pat you on the back for a couple hours and make you, give you a little elixir for your problem and maybe sort of give you a, a sense of uh, peace for a little bit of time, a solace, but it won't last. You see, there's an eternity that awaits each one of us. And there is only one thing that can save, only one man and only one work. Jesus Christ, his work on the cross. Outside of him, no man can be saved. Very politically incorrect thing to say, by the way. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to this line. By the way, Jesus said it, not me. And since I happen to believe Jesus is in fact God, I'm going to listen to him. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's the lone means, the lone vehicle, the lone way. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. How do we get into the holy of holies? 
by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Who is that way? It's Jesus, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is such an astounding thought. And I, I brought it up last week, and I think it's worthwhile just to throw it out on the table again because it is so amazing. There is a sign given. You will recognize the Savior of the world by a very, very specific thing. God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is going to come. The one who's going forth and from of old and from everlasting, the one who will be Emmanuel, God with us. How will you recognize him when he comes? that we might recognize the arrival of his majesty. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. So as we speak to these shepherds, these lowly folk, they're given a sign. How will they recognize the one who has come? The I am! The creator who has come. How will they recognize him? What is the sign? Brace yourselves for this awe-striking thought number nine. Awe-striking thought number nine. He, the one who is, the one who created the heavens and the earth, God himself, he, um, let's just read the scripture. And the angel said unto them, fear not, and behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough. Uh, is, Is God serious here? That's going to be the way we recognize him. The high and holy one has descended so low. You see, his nature, though he is high and holy, is humble. And he demonstrates the fullness of the Father in everything he does. He's at the beck and call of the Father. You know how dependent he would be be entering the womb of a little girl? Microscopic, conceived of the Holy Ghost. Microscopic, he begins, totally dependent upon the Father. And the Father, when he is born, says, this is the sign. You will recognize him, for he will be dressed and garmented in peasantry. Swaddling clothes. Sparganao is the Greek. And you will find him lying in a fatne, a feeding trough where animals find their food. Uh, No, I can't accept this. Unless he takes that low position and washes our feet, we can have no part with him. As hard as it is to allow the gospel to actually be the gospel, we have to allow the high one to come very low. And we want to protect his dignity. We want to protect his sovereignty. He's the one in charge of that. He's the one saying this is the sign. You will recognize me. That's how you'll know me. He, the one who is, the one who created the heavens and the earth, God himself, the one who is holy, 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 the one who has measured the waters of this earth in the hollow of his hand, the one who meddied out heaven with a span, the one who comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, the one who weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance, the one to whom the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are as counted as the small dust of the balance, the one when he, who, when he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand, the one who sits as king between the mighty cherubim, over all, above all, over all, and in control of all, the God of all the kingdoms of this earth, 
the one who can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion, the one who can set the dominion of his ordinances in the earth. He can send forth lightning, number the clouds, and stay the bottles of heaven. The one, this one, was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a filthy animal feeding box. John 6. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. That's a strange little passage of Scripture. And John 6 was a tripping point for all the other Jews too. They all left him. The only little small band of ragamuffin disciples that remained were the 12 that we know. They all left him. Why? He said, look, I'm being laid in an animal's feeding trough. I am actual food. Very strict dietary code for the Jews. And it doesn't include cannibalism. However, that dietary code is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. You see, I'm separating you out so that when I come, you will have the food that will truly save you. There's only one blood that you could ever partake of, and that's the blood of the Messiah. There is one that must enter in, and if he doesn't enter in, it's a strange thing to think of this high and holy God becoming a digestible item, to enter into our lives and dwell there. But he did. Awe-striking thought number 10. We are those swaddling clothes. He is laid in a feeding trough. Animals eat out of a feeding trough. Well, if you're wondering who the animals are, they're us, the unclean. You see, we have no deserved, rightful entry point to partake of that holy, holy, holy one to enter into his presence. And yet he says, unless, unless you allow me to wash your feet, unless you allow me to lie in that feeding trough, and unless you partake of me, turn to me and say, that is my lone source of life. Unless you do, you can have no part with me. There's no life in you. This is the only means of life. But God, I can't allow you to take such a low place. You see, Christianity is based on the fact that God took a low place. He entered us. We are a stable, a smelly stable. I mean, if you were to take a tour through our lives pre-Christ, boy, I tell you what, woo! What, what's the term? Woo, doggy! Yeah. <laughs> it's not a clean environment. And as a result, we are cut off from the clean environment, the holy throne of grace. We have no access to it unless we are clean. Unless we are righteous, we have no admittance. And so Jesus said, look, I have given up my life. I have taken the penalty upon myself that was due you for the sin that you committed. And I have become clothing. If you enter into me, I will clothe you. And I have admittance into the throne room of grace. So if you believe in me, I will take you with me. So you can actually enter in me. In me is clothing. In me is righteousness. And then when we enter the throne room of grace, he says, ask the Father. Ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. The life of God wants to dwell inside of you. How will you recognize the Messiah? 
Well, he'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He'll be wrapped in us, Gentiles. That's absurd. No way! That's the way it is. That's the sign. That's how they recognize Jesus then. That's how they recognize him now. He's in us, the church. The Almighty has condescended to be wrapped in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If God's going to be seen, there's one key thing that must take place. He must enter into us. We must be born again. Emmanuel, God with us. could say it this way, God in us. The hope of glory. Glory, the full manifestation, the clear picture, with the curtain pulled back, without obscuring. Do you see him clearly? That's glory. The full manifest beauty of his person. Well, there's no hope that God's manifest beauty would ever be seen down here. No, there is. There is. God will be wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he will come and dwell within us and make us his living quarters. These hands will become his hands. These eyes, his eyes. This mouth, his mouth. This heart will beat with his burdens. These feet will go where he calls us. And we are called the body of Christ. That's what the church is. Swaddling clothes for the great redeemer. I have a bonus one. I know I told you 10, but I threw in an 11th one. Because it's really good. Awe-striking thought number 11. Now get this. We have talked about such a holy God, such a magnificent Savior. Brace yourselves. I know him. The very God of very God, I know him personally. Is that awe-striking to you? It's awe-striking to me. I, I, I can, like, talk with him. I can spend my life with him and know him. That I might know him is my great pursuit he calls me friend, brother, son, bride. I know that's strange for us guys, but it's very intimate, by the way. His beloved, the sheep of his pasture. It's intimate phraseology, intimate terminology. God has invited me near, close, that I would know the majestic Jesus, the one who is king of all kings and lord of all lords. I would know him. That is my great privilege, and it is your great privilege. One of my great tests, I've always said it this way, is when you're wondering, but would he want me? Well, let me ask you this question. Do you want him? If you want him, it's because he wants you. There's a whole bunch of people on this earth that don't want him. But for some reason, you do. Why do you want him? It's because he wanted you first. If you have a longing for Jesus, it's because Jesus has a longing for you. That's why you have the longing. You ache to know him. Where's that coming from? I'll tell you. It's coming from him. He's wooing you. Do you see him? Do you want him? If you want him, his answer is already yes. Just call. Just ask. Call upon that great name of Jesus, the one who is. Call upon him, and you will find a sure salvation. Thank you so much for listening to part three of this three-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. 
Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.